ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There will be a sense, and the government will be very, very cognizant and worried about this, that these rate hikes are on them. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello there and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wiradjuri Country in Melbourne. And I'm David Spears, National Political Lead here at the ABC, host of Insiders, joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri Nations here in Canberra. Great to be back with you, PK, on the podcast. Yeah, it's very great to have you, David, and it's great timing because you've just come back from the trip with the Prime Minister to China and I'm going to pick your brain Mm. on what that was and what it meant. Look, at the domestic level, though, David, there was more bad news for households this week with the Reserve Bank of Australia lifting interest rates on Tuesday to a 12-year high, the 13th interest rate rise we've seen. The Melbourne Cup Day rate rise was widely tipped by economists, so we we were expecting it, but the impact will be enormous, really, on households. And, of course, the, the political ramifications matter a lot too. Jacob Grieber joins us really shortly. He's the senior correspondent with the Australian Financial Review. We'll talk about that and mm. other issues too. But, David, let's start with your trip to China. You're fresh mm, from mm. it or perhaps not fresh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, t- trying. Uh, you travelled alongside the Prime Minister on this trip. This is the first time an Australian mm. Prime Minister has been to China in seven years, so a big deal. It was seen by many as a stabilisation of relations mm. after years in the diplomatic deep freeze. Before we get into the significance of the trip, can you give us a sense of what things were like on the ground in Beijing? Yeah, look, it's a good question. We'll we'll come to the substance of what the PM was doing, but this was my first time back to either Beijing or Shanghai um, since the COVID years. In fact, I hadn't been to China since the last Prime Minister went there seven years ago. Look, I'm always struck uh, in China by the scale of things, the scale of those two big cities in, in particular. I mean, each of them has a bigger population than Australia, so that's always... Um, something to see uh, and experience. But I was also struck this time in particular by how careful we had to be as journalists. You know, we were advised about all of this, but and you always have to be careful in China as a journalist, but the advice was really cautious this time around. There really wasn't much opportunity to go and wander around, talk to people at all. Um, you have to use burner phones, laptops, that you, you know, because of the threat of bugging um, that you're not going to use when you get back. Uh, and and the sheer number of security cameras, including facial recognition cameras, on every street pole, everywhere you look, that had really ballooned since the last time I was in China. Um, you are being watched everywhere. Look, it, it's still a fascinating place to visit, standing in the Great Hall of the People um, on the edge of Tiananmen Square there or visiting the Temple of Heaven, which we did in Beijing with the Prime Minister where it was freezing cold. They're amazing experiences, but it does have its difficulties as a journalist operating there. Yeah, it certainly does. The Prime Minister described the trip as a very positive Mm. visit 
announcing the resumption of the annual leaders' talks between the two countries, which had stopped happening. And, of course, so much so that it was hard for a minister to even get another minister in China on the phone. Really, really problematic to actually do any work when there's a problem if you can't get them on the phone. Anthony Albanese spoke a lot about the visit stabilising relations. But, David, what does stabilisation actually look like? We can't go back to the way things were. So what is the new normal? Well, first and foremost, it is that ability to engage. And and you're right to point that out because it's not that long ago when no calls were being returned uh, from Beijing. So talking is a good thing. And look, both sides did agree on this visit to resume annual leader talks. So that's unquestionably a good thing. It means you know, they can talk about difficult things and positive things. The trade sanctions are being removed. Most of them have gone. Well, the wine sanction is being reviewed. That's expected to go. Lobster and, and beef are expected to follow soon. So, look, all of that's good news. Chung Lei has been released from detention, which is great. Uh, Young Hing Jun has not, and it was a little unclear. There weren't signals given from either side during this visit that there'd be any progress on that case. So that's still a concern. And then you've, of course, got those deep differences that remain over human rights and national security, what China's doing in the region in particular. Now, Anthony Albanese had the opportunity to raise those concerns with Xi Jinping, with uh, Li Chung, the Premier. But look, who knows whether that's really going to have much influence on China. Very hard to see that there's, you know, Xi Jinping is suddenly going to drop his ambitions to seize Taiwan, to militarise the South China Sea, expand China's influence in the region. But at least... Australia can raise those concerns face to face. You know, the Prime Minister can eyeball the President and talk about these things. And Joe Biden will be doing that when they're expected to meet the two leaders of the big powers on the sidelines of the APEC meeting in about a week's time over in San Francisco. So it's not like Australia's alone here. China is trying to engage a bit more. Its economy is under strain. So you can see there's a bit of motivation to do that. Yeah. Now, many were putting a lot of benchmarks and guardrails on this trip to determine Mm. what would be the success of it. And I think it's fair to say that the opposition was really wrapping up some of the rhetoric around just how much the Prime Minister needed to achieve and the tough talk around some of the, the harder issues. What's your observation of the way he handled those harder issues? Yeah, look, it's it's interesting. How do you measure success with these things? And you're right, the opposition did kind of keep lifting the bar. It wanted the trade sanctions removed, it wanted Chung Lei released, and and then you know as these things started to happen, it, it was then demanding something more on Yang Hing Jun and um, and and you know so on. But look, I think clearly this was a success. In fact, I think the double act of the visits to Washington and Beijing have been a success. Now, it doesn't mean all of Australia's problems are solved here in the US. The AUKUS legislation still hasn't quite got through Congress, but But progress is being made. The signals are positive, and I think the visit helped on that front. China, well, you know, it's not agreed to do everything Australia might wish, whether it's in relation to Taiwan or the South China Sea. But we are seeing progress on the trade front, Um, Chung Lei being released. Uh, This is always going to be a difficult relationship to navigate, always has been. Um, And look, a good example of that is this question about whether Australia can trust China and, and, and Xi Jinping. And this was put to the Prime Minister after Joe Biden in Washington, uh, you know, a week or two earlier had said, trust but verify when it comes mm. to China. So you could, sell, you could tell, have a listen to this, the Prime Minister asked a couple of times, does he trust Xi Jinping? He can't say yes, because, you know, we know that there are concerns about its cyber hacking, its intellectual property theft that ASIO's very concerned about. There are concerns about what it's doing in the South China Sea. But he landed on this formula to answer the question of trust. We have different political systems, but the engagement that I've had uh, with uh, with China, with President Xi, 
have been positive. Uh, they have been constructive. Uh, he has never said anything to me that has not been uh, done. And, and that's a, a positive way that you have to start off dealing with people. Yeah, so a, a careful answer there, PK. That a really doesn't actually good say, answer, actually, managing the question, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, as I say, he can't say that he, yeah, yes, he trusts she, but he doesn't want to offend either, not when things are becoming friendlier and friendlier. I think the, the, the line to take out of the, um, the whole trip, though, I don't know if you saw this one, the handsome boy. Oh, um, tell me yes. Sorry, I got overly excited there, but I'm, tell me about handsome there's boy. There's a little what backstory here. Right, there's a little backstory. Um, Anthony Albanese was out for a morning walk uh, along the Bund in Shanghai wearing his Matildas T-shirt, uh, as, as he does. It's a bit of a throwback to John Howard. He used to wear the Wallabies. Um, yeah, but, uh, tracks but it's the Matildas. He's trolling Matildas. us. I love it. It's today's modern version of the team everyone loves. Um, and so anyway, he was out there and captured on video. It didn't, uh, by the way, tell the media that he was going out for um, this morning walk, which you know, we you know, always want the pictures. But the Australian uh, journalist Will Glasgow just happened to be out there walking himself, saw the PM, uh, whipped out the mobile phone, got some video, uh, sent it out um, on social media. It ends up on Chinese social media, I, I suppose WeChat. Um, starts circulating, you know, this picture of the Australian Prime Minister in China. Uh, and then a, a day or two later, the PM sitting down with um, the Premier, Li Chung. China's trying to be friendly to Australia at the moment. He, he references this. He says, oh, apparently... Um, yeah, there's this video of you on social media that's getting a lot of comments that we have a handsome boy visiting from Australia. Now, there might be a translation issue here. But, um, I reckon. <laughs> hashtag handsome boy. Boy, apparently, I mean, Apparently you know. boy, the, the word that was used, I mean, the official translation was boy, but it can also mean older man. Um, but anyway, it certainly provided a bit of flattery and a bit of uh, levity to, uh, to this serious talk. Uh, levity is what we're looking for um, at a time like this too. This was really a big moment for the Prime Minister. Now he he wants to get the domestic traction out of it, yep. David, right? No, he does. I, I wonder about how long that lasted, though, because, and we're going to get into that with our guest in a moment, yeah. but, you know, by Tuesday there was an interest rate rise. Yeah, and look, I thought it was interesting. I mean, the, the PM's obviously aware of the political problem of travelling so much. The opposition's chipping away at him on this talkback radio. You know, any prime minister who's doing this much travel will be aware that at a time of a cost of living crisis at home, it's not a great look to be uh, swanning around on the world stage. He's got to do this stuff, but it, it is an issue to deal with. And particularly with an interest rate rise happening while he's abroad, um, look... He delivered the lines that you would expect, and we'll get into that. But uh, he did also point out, this was his defence, that resuming trade with China has already delivered, in his view, nearly $6 billion of improvement in exports on those various goods that were sanctioned. Uh, With those tariffs gone, about $6 billion improvement. So he's trying to say this is jobs, this is better incomes, this Mm. is the dividend, if you like, of doing all of this. Not that we're transactional with China, but... you you, But that there is a cost of living part of this story. Yep. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, look, he, he's trying, I think, to have an answer to some of that, that criticism about the time that he's spending uh, abroad. And right now, of course, he's uh, in the Cook Islands as well on the next um, the next yeah. trip in the Pacific this time. Yeah. But anyway, it's, um, it's something that he has to be aware of uh, and perhaps something we should get into with our guest. Let's do it. <laughs> Jacob Grieber is the senior correspondent at the Australian Financial Review and our guest in the party room. Jacob, welcome. Hi there. Jacob, great to have you uh, on the show. And want to perhaps shift, if we can, uh, in a moment to the interest rate rise. Um, 
Right on Melbourne Cup Day, uh, as expected. But first, we've just been reflecting on the Prime Minister's visit to China. I want to get your thoughts watching it from here. Um, what, were you, what were the big outcomes, do you think? Look, I think the visuals of the two of them meeting was important. We haven't mm. seen that. And it sends the message that we are indeed communicating again as kind of adult grown-up countries with grown-up issues and we can, we can face them, you know, on a, on a personal level. That's super important. That's been missing for a while. It's, it's a bit early to tell yet what it is that will come from it. We've kind of let go our concerns about what China was doing to us on trade, those World Trade Organisation complaints. We've withdrawn them as part of the sort of diplomatic process of making this whole meeting come together. On the expectation that they'll, that be, they'll be lifted, the, yeah. E- exactly. Now, we could have gone through a long process of taking that to to the trade organisation, we would have probably won because those mm. sanctions against barley and, and wine and other things were ridiculous and, mm. and certainly in breach of the rules. And the problem for us is those rules matter. We tell China all the time we believe in the rules-based order. But in this case, we've let that slide. Now, there's a bigger purpose to that, so maybe that's fine, uh, but we'll see. And and I think it's interesting, you know, this, this meeting with Albanese and Xi comes a couple of days really before a bigger meeting with Biden and Xi. Mm. And I think even just in the last few hours, we saw the White House announce that they're reconnecting the military to military phone line. Oh, I hadn't seen a- that. And it's, it's interesting. It's, it's actually insane that that was ever disconnected yeah, if you think yeah. about what's at stake. Well, particularly given they have they, they have ministerial dialogue. The Foreign Minister Wang Yi was in Washington, uh, I think on the same day that Albanese was leaving Washington. So they've got that ministerial dog. The leaders, as you say, are due to meet at, uh, on the sidelines of APEC in a week. But the militaries hadn't been talking and mm. you kind of want that red phone there. It's kind of scary thought, well, that's, really. So that's, that's yeah. interesting that they've, um, they've agreed to do that. Yeah. yeah. So and, and this stuff all kind of went by the wayside after the pandemic, you know, when the relationship really fell apart. Mm. Um, yep. So here that's... we are. That's exactly when it hit rock bottom and, um, yeah, uh, stabilisation now. I do love that word. I want to um, pivot to another topic, uh, the extraordinary story that's really still playing out in relation to the Optus outage. Now, this story was really extraordinary. Ten million Optus customers losing access to broadband and mobile networks, businesses closed, train services in Melbourne temporarily ground to a halt. It's gone on and on. It has been quite the headache. Uh, Optus weren't exactly on the front foot addressing this scandal. And now there's been a big government response to it for an independent review run by the department. Optus says they're going to be part of it. But, Jacob, I'd love to hear from you. What on earth went wrong? This is the second kind of public relations disaster from Optus where they've merely mishandled it. Mm. How do you view it? Well, there's a pattern, isn't there? They're, they're, the communications are terrible. They were, they were appalling For on the hack. For a communications company. <laughs> boom, boom, yeah. They were, you know, and they were terrible on the hack last year, as you point out. They, they've been very poor in the last, what is it, 30-odd hours. Uh, and what it, what it reminds us is that some of these companies are really too too important to have these kind of failures and we take them for granted. We, we just assume the network will always work uh, and yet we don't know the answer yet fully to, to what's gone wrong but mm. there's 
obviously no suggestion, I think, that it was a hack or some sort of nefarious foreign interference in the network. And I think government uh, sources are pointing that out as well. Pointing they, that they, out. they don't think this has been an, a hack. An but, but what some of the suggestions are, and this is for Optus to really explain transparently to its customers, is... Is it because certain equipment failed? Is there a problem with the way they're maintaining this equipment? Do they have enough staff to maintain these networks? Uh, This is a company that's been under some financial pressure, maybe not from its shareholders, which is an offshore company mainly, but, you know, they lost a lot of customers after last year's hack. Have they been cutting corners now on the capex that, that you need to spend to maintain these systems? We don't know, but that would be really concerning. Yeah, and, and look, it's it's so interesting because there's the, the the failure when it comes to crisis communication, right? Not having someone from Optus explaining what was going on and the hours as this was all unfolding is staggering. I mean, this has real world implications, not just mm. for you know the emergency calls. But businesses that are critically relying on yeah. um, all the payment systems, all of this electric vehicle charging network. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got a message from one of them yesterday saying you can't use this particular network because the SIM card in the network's an Optus one. So and all sorts of things. So what sort of redundancy do we need with our big telecommunications companies when something like this happens? Should everyone, should some customers fall onto the? be transferred onto another network like Telstra, for example? Is that is that feasible? Mm. I don't know if this review is going to get into that, but um, you know, we shouldn't be in this day and age in this situation where you know, yeah. 10 million people are, are stuck. And I, like, I'm not a, I, I have no knowledge of the technicalities of this, but like, <laughs> what happened if those people needed to ring emergency services? I mean, mm-hmm. were they able to on other networks? It's a little or? confusing from what I've picked up. I think most people on mobile still could because you, you're uh, able to access the Vodafone, Telstra, other networks for emergency yeah. calls. If you're from a landline, though, obviously you, you can't. That's right. And a lot of the vulnerable population may have been in that situation. So that's all still being worked out. There's other figures that are out today. For instance, Lifeline was down significantly on their calls. Now, Mm. you call Lifeline... You know, you, we know why you call yes. Lifeline, right? Yes. And that, that's yeah. th- this is dangerous stuff. Now, of course, you cannot avoid something like this happening entirely. That, like, the, there's things that happen in the world, but this many hours, I suspect that that could be avoided. And back to the the government's inquiry that David talked about, they are going to look at the technical nature of it. They're going to look at how it could have been mitigated, and then the what they call learnings or the lessons <laughs> from it will be um, implemented across the sector, not just Optus. So there we are. <laughs> and, they are and, foreshadowing change. And I think one other little, maybe one other little concern here is if Optus doesn't recover from this, and and customers more customers leave mm-hmm. that network, that's not great for competition. Oh, no, that's a good point. Uh, you know, it means that some of the other networks might actually do quite well and maybe they can charge what they like. Then. <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. A, um, I just want to play for a second um, the Assistant Treasurer and the Minister for Financial Services, Stephen Jones, who really didn't hold back. Here he is. It has to be on the table. There's no doubt that it has to be on the table. Um, if you're a small business that's lost a day's takings because your phone system wasn't working, um, then you're going to be asking those hard questions. So compensation absolutely has to be on the table. So there's pressure on them to provide compensation. They've got to What's do it. A, a stab in the dark. What, what were you looking at there? Yeah, if I mean, trying to compensate every business that exactly. lost a day's... Suddenly a phone company has to take on that risk that it might have to pay compensation. 
So that'll get built into the cost of the service as well. So that's a tricky it's one. It's a tricky one. Um, you know what else is tricky? <laughs> <laughs> you take it away, David. Yeah, let's go to interest rates uh, and what the Reserve Bank's done this week on Melbourne Cup Day. No, look, no great surprise. I think most were expecting it to happen. Uh, nonetheless, another quarter of a point rise, uh, a 25 basis point rise, takes the official rate to 4.35%. Um, passed on in full, that's going to be about 76 bucks a month for um, average repayments on a half a million dollar loan. Um, but look, it's not only households feeling the heat. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is too. This is a difficult day for people with a mortgage. Uh, we do understand that Australians are already under substantial pressure in their household budgets and this will tighten the screws further. Uh, we all want inflation to moderate further and faster. Uh, we have the same goals as the Independent Reserve Bank, but we have different jobs. Well, as part of that different job, we'll get to what he might do to help. But first, why did the Reserve Bank increase rates, Jacob? I think it's worth just coming back to basics here. Why, why was this rate rise necessary? They felt from the data that they were getting that inflation was still too high mm. compared to where they thought it would be. And furthermore, there was a sign that inflation will stay higher for longer than they wanted. Mm -hmm. So we're talking out into next year, certainly, but also into 2025. And you think about what that means in, in people's lives. If you've got inflation running at 5 6 4% even for 12 months, think about it this way. You, you've got $100 in your pocket today. You roughly know what you can spend with that $100. was certainly less than it was a year ago. Mm -hmm. In a year's time at that kind of inflation rate, you can only buy $95 worth of stuff. Hmm. Another year, you're down to probably $89. Keep going until the end of the decade, it's more like 70 bucks. That's the pernicious nature of inflation. And that's the Reserve Bank's job. And is this global issues that are keeping it higher and longer, or is it into the domestic economy? No, I think it's a combination of things. You've, you've got that fuel price pressure that's driven by global forces. You've got a very weak Australian dollar, and that's partly because our interest rates are lower than other big central banks' interest rates. Think about the dollar. We import a lot of stuff. We pay for it with Australian dollars that are getting weaker. So those imports become more expensive. And then the final element is signs that some of this pressure in the services economy driven by wages is starting to become a bit of a loop that the Reserve okay. Bank's worried about. So, that, so now, obviously, there is a strong political dimension to all of this. The government is under enormous pressure. There's no doubt about it. The honeymoon looks like it's well and truly over. It's dealing with, um, you know, some pretty cranky people in the community who are paying um, a lot for, you know, just paying their mortgages. Uh, people who are renting are struggling too. And so I want to go to, if we can, the way that the politics is playing out here. Now, the opposition is is suggesting Labor has taken its eye off the ball, that they're too focused, for instance, in the past. They can't argue it much, for much longer, but at this stage on the voice and other issues. Is that cutting through in your view? And is the government now kind of providing some answers on what it will do? Yeah, Patricia, I think you're right on that. That's really where where things get very difficult for the government. People may not be across the technical details of these these forces in the economy, but they will get the sense that this is on this government's watch. They've been in power now for 18 months. Decisions have been made in that time. The consequences of those decisions, when you're talking about inflation, 
are becoming real. And so there will be a sense, and the government will be very, very cognizant and worried about this, that these rate hikes are on them. The first lot, you know, you, you could comfortably blame the last lot and international events. This particular rate hike's quite unique in that it comes about six months after the budget. And the budget, there was a bunch of decisions made and a bunch of kind of almost bets were made about the inflation trajectory in the economy. And things have not played out the way they thought. So what, what does that mean it should do? And again, this is tricky because you help people with cost of living, you arguably make the inflation problem worse, right? Yeah. If you pump money yeah. in their pockets to help... So what can it do? It's got a mid-year budget update coming, what, in a couple of weeks' time. Does it do anything at that point or does it wait until May next year for the next budget? Um, it, it's a risk not to do anything until May because that's a long mm. time down the track. There is a lot of things governments can do on the inflation picture. Government is about a third of the economy. So if you want to cool the economy down, you cool down government spending uh, or you lean on other things that the government could do, like taxes. That has a consequence, of course, as well. But Mm -hmm. on the spending side, you know, we heard from the Treasurer in May, and he's made a great virtue of it since, that he did not spend, quote-unquote, the revenue upgrades. He, He kind of took them out of the economy and paid off debt and what have you. The current situation suggests he should have probably gone even further, mm. not only not spent the revenue upgrades, he probably maybe should have trimmed some spending overall. But government spending this year actually goes up quite yeah. a bit, more than 2%. It's, it's closer to 3 actually, mm. at a time when the economy's much, much slower. Mm. So you're still expanding government faster than the economy. That is well, the definition of inflationary. They have gone to this slightly now in terms of what their contribution is. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, talked about the infrastructure spend, the IMF's warning that it needs to either delay, axe, deal with that. And then uh, the Labor minister responsible for infrastructure talked about that in a more sort of direct way this week. She talked about the cost blowouts of the former government and what they're looking to do when it comes to infrastructure spending. Here she is, Catherine King. It is simply just not sustainable for the pipeline to not, you know, to continue in the way that it is uh, after a decade, frankly, of being used um, in, for political purposes. Okay, so a really mm. political point she made there, mm. Jacob. But yeah, yeah. What's the broader message about infrastructure spending and and the stimulus it's providing in the economy? I, I think you know, so. The economist side of my brain says actually that's a really good thing they've done here. They've they've raised this issue, put it on the table, the debate about should we be prioritising some of this infrastructure spending? Should we slow down on some of it, uh, reprofile it as they say in the mm-hmm. terrible budgeting jargon into further in, into out years? The economics of that actually are really good. Uh, because that will help on the inflation pressure. You know, there's so much infrastructure coming to be Mm. built that's competing for materials, for staff. Mm. Uh, The pressure's enormous. Um, The problem problem on the other side of the ledger, the political side of my brain goes, oh, boy, you're now telling people, uh, kind of after a big period where we've talked about the voice, you're now telling people, you know what, that that traffic jam you're stuck in, it's going to stay there for longer or, or whatever it might be that was going to and, be and, fixed. And, and some of the states, again, to start squealing the, about and this And we've too. already seen that in Queensland. Queensland uh, loves nothing more than to kick Canberra and it doesn't care whether it's a Labor government or a coalition government. Queensland always comes first and they've teed off immediately on we this. We want our infrastructure money. We want our infrastructure money. So this is politically really, really tricky. The economics makes sense. The politics much harder.
Yeah, it's look tackling inflation politically very, very difficult indeed for the government. Um, but simply putting it all on the shoulders of the independent Reserve Bank uh, clearly won't be enough. Jacob Greber, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for your analysis. Thanks, David. Thanks, Patricia. Thanks, Jacob. We'll move to questions without notice. I give the call to the leader of the opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And we've got this question which asks us about the Prime Minister's trip to the Pacific Islands. He's been travelling a lot, of course, because he's had so much on. David, Mm. what's he trying to achieve at the Pacific Islands for him? Yeah, look, with all of these trips, um, you can map the argument there's way too many of them, but which one don't you go? You can't not go to the Pacific Islands for them. I know Prime Ministers have in the past, but right now with the strategic competition going on there, an Australian PM would be nuts not to go. But I actually think it's climate change that's uh, so far been dominating, certainly the day before and now the day of the Pacific Islands forum. Uh, Look, while Anthony Albanese might be under pressure from the coalition here in Australia for going too fast towards renewables, when you go to the Pacific, it's the opposite. He's under pressure for not going fast enough, whether it's setting a date to phase out the use of fossil fuels in Australia, um, stop opening up new or expanded coal and gas projects, set an ambitious 2035 target, all of these things he's facing some pressure to act on. Look, he's defending what he's doing, pointing out that his side of politics is doing or offering to do more than the other side, but it's fascinating to see the, the, the politics of climate change flip entirely once the PM goes to the Pacific. Yeah, it's it's he's said he's got more announcements to make. We're recording this on a Thursday morning, so there'll be more that comes out of it. But yes, certainly, um, this is he's not the Morrison government, and so yes, there is warmth towards this government for sort of taking climate change seriously as it's seen. But you know, it's still not going to be quite enough, is it? All right, that's it for the party room this week. David's back next week, which is exciting. Thanks so much, David. In the meantime, send your questions in. We love getting them. We're especially fond of voice notes, which you can email to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow the party room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. See you next week, David. See you, PK.